at this book of Ecclesiastes, I pray, Father, that you would show us the reality of who you are and the difference that you make in our lives, how you give us meaning and hope, Lord. And Father, you give us these things abundantly. And so I just pray that we would rejoice in your word tonight, that you would speak to us and guide us through it. To your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and wish your neighbor a Merry Christmas. Sean, can you turn on the light? Thank you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we'll be starting at verse 1. Again, we're looking at these observations from the preacher, more than likely Solomon, the wisest man who has ever existed, as he examines life. Again, he's examining life. It's important to remember that he is examining life under the sun or apart from God. Every once in a while, he'll come to a conclusion. Every once in a while, he'll revisit how things are, at least the true meaning of things, because of the existence of God. And so entering into chapter 3, if you'll go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9. Preacher tells us, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? Father, once again, we just pray that you would show us the profit that we have in you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who labor, but labor, Father, not based upon what we observe in our society, but based upon what we know to be true in your word. So once again, prepare us for every good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So what we've seen in chapter 1 would be the problem stated. The problem, well, life is hopeless apart from the existence of God. The preacher, in his wisdom, he made some startling observations. Now keep in mind, Solomon received this wisdom, this wisdom from God. And as he is making these observations, he's trying to make, take, take some sort of meaning from life, again, under the sun, And he keeps coming to these conclusions. Apart from God, things make no sense. And so his observations that we saw in chapter 1, nothing ever changes, not really. Nothing is ever new, and nothing is understood. And then he comes to a conclusion that had to really strike his heart deep in chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. I communed with my heart, or I was very honest with myself, saying, Look, I've obtained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I have set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. 
for in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so what he's saying is, since I'm able to see these things and perceive them and take them to their logical conclusion, these things that I see men apart from God going in godless directions, they really vex my heart. And then he's saying, again, we live in the information age, the last part of verse 18, from much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We're kind of dealing with that this day as we look at the news channels, and there's news channels everywhere. We have reporters that embedded with the soldiers during a time of war, and any time there's any kind of terrorist attack or, or, or possibility of a terrorist attack, we're being bombarded with all of this knowledge and all of this information, and it can be hard to discern. And it can be so overwhelming at times, and it can seems like things are collapsing and falling apart at other times. So this caused him to re-examine his own life, his accomplishments, and then in chapter 2, he presented four arguments that seemed to come to the conclusion that his life, well, it's not even really worth living. He looked at the monotony of life, the vanity of wisdom, the futility of wealth, and then he realized that great equalizer, death. And all the wisdom he had, all of the wealth and the things that he had accumulated, what good does it really do you on the day of your death? Came to that conclusion, the rich and the poor, the wise and the fool, they all die the same way. It's just going to be between them and their maker at some point as they're they're grasping for their last breaths, always keeping in mind, again, that his position is apart from a relationship with God. And so, at times, it seems as he even comes to the edge of despair. And I would imagine for quite a while, he thought that all of his, his, his possessions would, would do him well. All of his fame would, would really mean something in the end, and this wisdom would serve him well. But again, it just shone a light upon reality that he didn't know if in his relationship with God, if he was really prepared to see. Because it's believed that Proverbs was presented in the mid middle of Solomon's life, and Ecclesiastes is at the end or towards the end. And so this is a wiser man looking back and examining these things. And as as he examined these things and came to the knowledge of these things, as he goes through the seasons of his life, and realizing, you know, all of these things that the world seeks after and I sought after, they're still leading to the very same place, that day of my death. And the person who's accumulated nothing, the person who had absolutely no wisdom, matter of fact, was an absolute fool, we both die the very same way. And so he stands on the edge of despair, but then again, from time to time, he'll bring God back into the equation as he does in chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, he says, Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Now there has been times and seasons throughout the church age that it was said that, well, Ecclesiastes is really a book of the flesh because, I mean, for him to come to a conclusion nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink and that he should enjoy uh, good in his labor, you know, that, that's kind of of the flesh, and, you know, the church can so have a stoic mindset. But you know what? The things that God truly has given us, we need to keep them in perspective, but we need to enjoy them. I had my family together last night, and just what a blessing it was. We bought last week, we 
we got it just a little area rug you know for our floor we've got hardwood floors and it's kind of cold and hard to lay on them especially when you have to get down to the level of the kids so we got a rug and last night i was laying on it with max max is uh i don't know what's max about three months old something uh oh he's six months old they grow so fast and but just you know that's that's my enjoyment nowadays is just laying there and being there with the babies and having that interaction and just playing with them and whatnot. And you see these things and these things are good. They're from the hand of God. And really, these are the things that are truly rewarding in life. Verse 25, again, of chapter two, for who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. And that word good, a man who is pleasing in his sight. But to the sinner... He gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God or pleasing before God. This is all vanity and grasping for the wind. And I'd present to you that Solomon was on both sides of that coin at some point in his life. There was times when he was pleasing to God, but again, in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, we saw there's times when he wasn't so pleasing to God as he multiplied his wives and they stole his heart away. And so he realized there was time when I was pleasing to God, when I was honoring God with my life, then I realized in the proper perspective of my possessions and my accomplishments and my wisdom that these things are good and there's an enjoyment. There's a blessing from God in these things. But I've also realized there was a time when I was far from God and not walking well with God and I had all the things and the stuff and the wisdom and it wasn't so pleasing to God and they weren't such a blessing. And I would imagine it boils down to his conscience and convictions in the midst of these things. It's okay to do well. It's okay to be able to have things and stuff, but we've got to keep it in the proper context. We have to understand that it's always got to be God first, and these things, they need to be enjoyed in the light of the blessings of God and what God has done in our lives and what God is continuing to do in our lives, and because of that, what we do for the Lord or because of the Lord in our lives. And so the preacher, he's now going to present each of the four arguments, the ones that we've just seen before, the monotony of life, the vanity of wisdom, futility of wealth, and the great equalizer death. As we go through the rest of this book of Ecclesiastes, he's going to present each of the four arguments in detail. So in chapters 3 through chapter 5, verse 9, we're going to be examining the monotony of life, the argument that he had presented in chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Remember when he realized as he's looking at nature and he's looking at God's creation, and I don't know to what degree he understood the concept, but the water as it evaporates up into the clouds comes over, it dumps into a lake, it flows in the river and back into the ocean, and there's just this endless cycle of life. Nothing ever really changes. And so now when examining the monotony of life, we as believers... We need to look at it remembering what we know that the Bible tells us to be true. Now we're told in the book of Romans that this we know, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And so we're, we're looking at this conclusion that this wise man in Ecclesiastes has come to, the monotony of life, and looking at these things. And it seems almost as if these things were just kind of wound up and left to run. And again, if these things are just things that just kind of happen and just kind of flow, then everything in life just kind of sort of happens by chance. You have this constant flow, and every once in a while there might be a subtle change or even a drastic change. 
But Romans chapter 8, verse 28 tells us, and we know, this is something that as Christians we need to know, and we need to embrace this knowledge that all things are working together for good. This would be God's will to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. So nothing is really random out there. Nothing ever just really just happens apart from the knowledge of God, but also the will of God. And again, if you're just solemn in examining these things and these cycles and whatnot, the monotony of life, then if you take God out of the equation, then you're just kind of on this merry-go-round that just really never stops until the day that you die. And, and, and you just kind of hope that it doesn't hiccup and, and throw you off prematurely somehow, some way. And so the truth of the matter is, if God does not preside over the affairs of man, then really, why do we need to bother with a right walk, a personal devotion, and, and even our religious beliefs? It, it's all in vain. But God's hand is upon us all. God's hand is upon every detail of our life. I mean, even the, the most minute detail, I mean, you've got to look at it that way. Because if he's truly God, if he's truly God, and the God that the Bible says that he is, then there's nothing that happens apart from his will. And if we can come to that belief and that understanding, then we can have confidence in every moment of our lives, understanding that it's being directed by the one who loves us. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, But our God is in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, verses 5 through 6, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas, in all the deep places, in the hidden and the unknown. Joseph understood this concept. When he was faced with his brothers after their father had died, if you recall, his brothers brought him into Egyptian captivity. But God, all things worked together for the good. Joseph's situation worked together for the good. And Joseph, he understood that. He embraced that. When his brothers came to him and they were worried that now that dad's gone, he's going to get revenge on us. Genesis 50, verse 22, he says, But as for you, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And so he's understanding the good that God brought about even through their evil intents. How can he seek revenge upon some people who God used that situation for his glory? And it's not just that they were fed for that day. We draw concepts of it even, I don't even know how many thousands of years, three to four thousand years later. And so God, God used that situation. I mean, keep your, put your mindset in the mindset of Joseph. Your brothers are, well, they've thrown you in this cistern or this, this well, this, this pit. As you're there, you're hearing their discussion. They're planning to kill you. They finally decide not to kill you, and just when you think, oh, good, then they sell you off as a slave. And then there you are, this caravan going into Egypt, and you're going to be sold as a slave into Egypt. And... and can you just imagine the despair? But if you're of the mindset, and you know, and I don't know to what degree Joseph believed this or knew this at this time, but if God's hand is upon this, then all of the trials and tribulations that you are entering into, you're entering into what God has prepared for you for the purposes and for his plans that he has in your life. And not just your life, but in the lives of others. And so Joseph, Joseph went into that situation 
but God was doing a great work in his life because he had something better planned, but also God had many lives planned to save many lives that day, to save many people alive because of that one situation. And then there's Esther. Esther, she happens to be in the palace, put there, we know, by the hand of God. And her uncle is telling her that she needs to speak up for God's people. In Esther chapter 4, verse 14, it says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So God, who dwells in eternity, knew the situation that was going to happen in Esther's day. And so what her uncle was saying, maybe God caused all the things previous to happen so that you would come into the, into the palace in order to intercede for your people. So God was working this all along. Her uncle understood the concept of all things working together for the good. And so the trials and tribulations that we go through today, they're hard. There's no doubt about that. They're not good within themselves, but they're working together for the good. The thing about it is sometimes we don't get to see the good for years to come, but in this life we'll be able to, at some point, be able to see the good. So if everything works together for the good of God, then that only goes to follow, then everything that goes on, if everything, it says everything, works together for the good, then everything is under the control of God. How can, it work, how can everything work together for the good if it's not, if everything is not under God's control? So, in this information age, when we see this knowledge that apart from God can truly lead to despair, but now understanding this is working together for the good. Well, how in the world can you say something like that is working together for the good? because we know that God is over all of the events of mankind. God is in control of these things. He's working these things, and God's not going to work them for evil. God's not going to work them for bad. God works those things for the good. So if I'm looking at things under the sun, and all these things are randomly happening, and what's going to happen when I go home tonight and turn on the news? It's just going to be another bad thing. Or when I go home and I turn on the news, I see the hand of God continuing to work the lives and in the lives of mankind. On New Year's Day, since New Year's is on Sunday, we're not going to have a New Year's Eve service, but we're going to have a New Year's Day service. We're going to show our year in review, but we're also going to have a prophecy update, and we'll just see the things that are going on in our society and how they relate to the things that God has set before us. The spirit of prophecy, we're told in Romans chapter 19, is Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, spirit of prophecy is Jesus Christ. The prophecies that we see coming to fulfillment today, they're all working towards the second coming of Christ. Is Christ going to come back in 2017? I hope that he does, but maybe not until 2117. Nobody knows. I'm not going to make any guesses, but we'll just see how God's hand continues to work. Now, if these things are not under God's control, why would we take a service to talk about the things that are going on in Syria and with Russia and and just across the world. It'd be pretty depressing. But now that we understand, or as we understand these things are working according to God's plan, we can look at these things in a confidence. So the preacher is to show us, because all things are under the Lord's control, there's purpose and meaning to everything that happens. And that's how he starts out here in verse 1 of chapter 3. To everything 
there is a season, a time for every purpose under the heavens. Two things. First of all, as I said before, nothing in this world is random or perpetual. Again, God didn't just wind us up and watch us go. I remember we, in the 60s, they pro- might still have them. A rubber band airplanes. Do they still have the rubber band? The balsa wood rubber band airplanes. You'd just wind it up and you would throw it and go and sometimes it would fly off and smack into a wall. It was just random. Sometimes They just seemed to go wherever they wanted to go. You'd throw them and boom, they'd go in. Or sometimes they would glide and go real well. Praise God that our lives are not like those rubber band airplanes that were just wound up. And even the ones that went, just sooner or later the rubber band became unwound and it would crash as well. Life Life is filled, we're seeing here, with seasons and times. A season would be a sequence of event. Just think of the seasons that we experience. We're getting ready. I think it's December 22nd, 23rd, winter. Winter's just about upon us. And then, you know, we've had a brutal fall here. Started out in the 80s, and now it's all the way down to the 50s. But we see the seasons and how they happen sequentially. Well, we have events of our lives. We have certain seasons of our lives. My wife and I, we have entered into the season of grandparent. At some point, if the Lord wills, we'll enter into the season of great-grandparent and all that those things uh, accompany those things. Seasons, but there's also times, and times are really the beginning of a season. Now it's time for us to enter into for us, you know, our golden years or whatever it is to describe. But as you look at the course of a life, there were plenty of seasons and times to those seasons. As you enter into your childbearing age, jobs, health, abilities, priorities, and even trials, testings, and refinings, they were all seasons. The season always has a start, and a season always has a finish. And so God has has put these all together, and it's these seasons that make up a life, and there's that time that designate the beginning of that season. My wife and I, in the day that we were married in June 28, 1980, it was the beginning of a time of a big season of our life, our married life together. We have been together for 36 and a half years, married about 38, 39 years that we've known each other. It's been quite a good and long season. Secondly, these seasons and times are directed again by the hand of the Lord because it says, for everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under the heavens. Every purpose, you can define that as business or matter. And so it's all the Lord's business. It's all a matter of the Lord. And so for everything there is a season, a time for everything that God is doing. Everything that God is doing in our lives. Now, if I can define it that way, I can look back at my life. And again, look back at your life. Don't look back at mine. I don't want to bore you. But look back at your life, and, and you see the times, how you entered into certain seasons, and the duration of seasons, and the intensity of different seasons. And you should see the business that God was accomplishing in your life during those times, during your single times, during your married times, with children, without children. Times maybe you were in school and that preparation, different jobs and all of these things that God's hand was in all of that to bring you to where you are today and where you will be in the days to come. Now, again, if you look back on all of that, it was random. And if it was random, you can look at me and say, wow, Pastor Mike, you're pretty lucky. Because if there's no God, then that's all it really was, was luck. Just don't tell my wife that. She doesn't like that word, luck. And she's right. Does luck? 
love pushes out the hand and the will of God. But as we believe in the holy God whose hand and will is in our lives, then I see that all of these things that are in my life were orchestrated by the hand of God. There's times that God allowed us for purposes of teaching and training to bring us up even to almost that edge of despair. Not, not death, but just that edge of despair and wherever it was that he was teaching and training us in. But God had always been there with us. And that's what he was doing to Judah as Judah was in Babylonian captivity. He was bringing to that place. There was a time, that time when they were brought into captivity because it was the beginning of a 70-year season that God was doing a work. But God met him in the midst of them to remind him that his hand is upon him. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil to give you a future and a hope. And God is just re reminding them that his hand is upon his life and this isn't the end of his plan, but he does have a plan for them, but he's giving them hope, trust in being able to trust in his word for their future, or at least to continue to trust in his word for their future. So Lord meets us in the midst of these times and these seasons for his reasons and his purposes. And so we're entering into a time, beginning of the Christmas season. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So what follows here in chapter 3 are 14 experiences of life that illustrate the reality of God's hand of control and the lives not just of his people because God doesn't just control our lives and leave everybody to random chance and the lives of all of mankind we are supposed to be the ones that acknowledge that hand so as that hand moves in our lives we give him the glory verse 2 a time to be born a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted it's that constant flow of those who enter into this life and those who exit. I have a front row seat being a pastor and that there's the baby dedications and there's the funerals that I do. There's a time where there's immense happiness and great sadness that goes on. But these things, these things are a cycle that has been going on since the existence of mankind. A baby being born, a person going on. And you see this reality as it goes on. Would just think of the despair if these things happen by random chance. They don't happen by random chance. We're told here that there's a time and a season and a purpose for every child that is born. There's an argument against abortion right there. There's an argument of life even in the womb. But this is placed there by the hand of God for his reasons and his purposes. And so it's one of the things that I've recognized, even really in an unsafe state in my children before we were born again, but even now I see, not just in my children, but every baby. There was a baby I was just kind of playing around with. Maybe you heard him start to cry because I think I scared him out in the fellowship hall. But you just look into the eyes of that child and you realize, yeah, Jesus could come back any, any moment, but for now, he's got reason and purpose. He's brought this child into this world because... He's got a plan and purpose for this child. And as he does, then we see that, well, we need to have hope and strength for this day. And even in those that God brings into his, in, in, unto himself, that, that God brings home, again, God's just working out his, his plans. And again, some of those plans we're not going to be able to know until we're in his presence. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. 
So just as the day of my birth was planned, I can have a confidence that the day of my death is planned by the Lord as well. It's not just going to be a random occurrence, but it is something planned. And as we're told in Psalm 115, verse 16, it is a precious time. Precious, in, <clears throat> excuse me, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's something that God values. The last part of verse 2, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, tells us that this is a common occurrence, really, in all of creation. A tree planted by one generation will be harvested by another generation, even in short season. You plant something at the beginning of spring, the beginning of summer, you're able to harvest it and to partake of it. There was reason and purpose for that planting and that growth and then the eventual harvesting of that. How many of you, I'm sure we all, had one pet or another, there was the joy of the day that you received it and it lived out its life and there was the end of its life. There was a time and there was a season. There's a time and seasons to life. There's a time and season for all of God's creation. Verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal a time to break down, and a time to build up. There's a time when it will be necessary to execute a criminal, justify a homicide, or to defend the helpless. There are also times of healing, restoration, and even rehabilitation. And so that's up to us to seek the will of God and, and really what is the reason and what is the purpose in all of these things. I've been reading a book by Bill O'Reilly. It's called Killing, you know, he's got that series, Killing Reagan, Killing Kennedy, and this is Killing the Rising Sun. It's about World War II, Japan, and the restoration of Japan, but really it focused upon the defeat of Japan. And in this concept of time to kill and a time to heal, there was Truman. Now, Truman was vice president to Roosevelt, but Roosevelt, I believe, had four terms, and I believe he died in the fourth term. Now, Truman was his vice president just for that fourth term. And so he came in, and it was only a year or so into it that Roosevelt died, and all of a sudden, he's now president of the United States. The United States just finishing, but still is at war with Germany and still at war with Japan. Well, the war with Germany didn't last too long into his administration, but Japan was raging. And he gave the orders to continue the attack against Japan, and there were the bombings and the major cities and, and factories and ports of Japan. And then there was this bomb, this bomb that he had no idea that even existed. It's something that had started in the administration of Roosevelt, but then he was told of it. This amazing bomb that can wipe a whole city off a map, this atomic bomb. They, they ran the test out in the desert. They had a few of them that were built. They tested it and they saw the power that this bomb possessed. And this bomb was very indiscriminate. It, it, it would just kill whoever was in its path. And so he had to make a decision. He had to make a decision. Was it going to be a time to kill? And, and he had to weigh out everything. And I, I can't imagine a man that would have to make this choice. But Okinawa was one of the, you know, the United States had what they called an island hopping campaign. They would go from island to island, Iwo Jima and Guam and all. They would attack the Japanese, they would take over that island, and they would move on to the next and the next and the next. Well, they had just finished conquering Okinawa. Okinawa, I, I believe it was about 3,000 Americans died on the beaches, of, well, in the, in the island of Okinawa. 10,000 casualties. A casualty is somebody taken prisoner, somebody who dies, or somebody's wounded. 
10,000 men, on the, just on the American side, 10,000 casualties. And this is just in Okinawa. Now, they, 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 they conquer Okinawa, and the next jump is going to be mainland Japan. Now, this is the mother country, and there's still over a million uh, Japanese soldiers that are still active in the military, and plus Japan had started arming their citizens, even their children. They, they would give them sharpened sticks and, and teach them how to use them. And so there was going to be this knockdown, drag-out battle that the estimates were up to and a million Americans were going to be killed. Not just casualties, but a million Americans were going to be killed in the taking of Japan. And so he had to weigh that out with dropping this atomic bomb upon a city and having citizens killed as well. He did the best he could. They dropped leaflets warning them of what's going to happen, but how could they possibly comprehend an atomic bomb? And so this man, who had that little plaque on his desk that said, the buck stops here, he made the decision and took responsibility for it, and it ended up ending World War II. Well, for him, there was a time to kill. But then he recognized the necessity for a time to heal. And so what he did was, and I see the wisdom in it. He didn't always see eye to eye with, with MacArthur, but I was going to say John MacArthur, but he's a pastor, uh, Douglas MacArthur. Um, he didn't see eye to eye, but, but this man understood the, the Japanese culture, and he was a man for the job at the time, and they inserted him, and he was basically dictator of Japan, if you will, for a period of time, but he kept the Japanese culture, and they started to rebuild, and they invested into the economy, and we know what has happened today. And so there was a time to kill. It was necessary to do that, and I mean, I guess everybody has to weigh that out. If he made the right choice, I believe that he did. But then there was a time to get in there and a time to start working a healing so that we'd see those people, these people restored. And so sometimes justice will demand judgment, and other times justice is going to demand grace. Sometimes it's necessary to do the demo. If you look at the last part of verse 3, a time to break down and a time to build up. It's necessary to do the, the, to demolish something for the purpose of restoring something or building something up new and better. In my construction days, the first thing that we would do is to go in there. It was the first line as I would bid a job out is to go in there. How much does it cost to do the demo on a job? To take things apart, to bring things back to scratch or back to flat or have an empty canvas, if you will in order to build it back up into something better or to something new. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. God is in our times of joy and the days of extreme sadness. These things are inward feelings expressed as God's designed emotions for a human life. These are all good things, and we're designed to laugh, but we are also designed to mourn. Those are very necessary you see somebody who has never mourned a sad thing or a death or whatever, and you know that's inside, and sooner or later, the way God has, <clears throat> the way God has created us, that's going to have to get out. You, I can look at it. You know, you see, you, you see people. You know, maybe it's on you know a news show or something. You know, they have the day of their marriage back in the '30s, and now they've been married for uh, I don't know 80 years or whatever it might be, and then one of the spouses dies. And then maybe like the same day or a day later, the other spouse dies. 
And it's just kind of an amazing, you know, thing that happens that way. But you just see the unity. And there was just such that joy. There was that time to, to dance on the day of their marriage. But then there's the time to mourn. But God's hand is over that. God's hand is upon that. And so, you know, it can be a very, a very sweet thing. Not that we, we, we look upon death that way. But in a way we do. Because there is the passing of from here to the Lord. And I looked at, looked at it that way with the, with the death of my father. That, yeah, he's absent from the body, but he's present with the Lord. And hard as it was to see him leave this body in the way that God had chosen for him to leave this body for cancer, but he ended into the ended up into the presence of the Lord. Again, I encourage you to read it. If you haven't read it, Pilgrim's Progress, they speak of this man, Christian, and his wife, Christiana, and they speak of their journeys and their Christian lives. Christian? He, he, passed, he passed over, passed through that river of death, and it almost drug him under, and it was a big upheaval, and he just barely made it across. And then later on, when it was his wife's turn to cross, it was just a little trickle, and she just walked through. And so there's some people that pass in great upheaval. There's some that pass through very silently and quietly. But nonetheless, there is, for us, there's that time to weep. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Least you sorrow as those who have no hope. But we do sorrow. We sorrow We sorrow in hope. We sorrow that God's done a thing and continues to do a thing in their lives. Verse 5, A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracement. The meaning is lost here to history. We're not sure exactly what it means as far as to cast away stones and to gather stones. Some people thought that it meant as far as for stoning somebody, and I don't think, I think that's already been talked about. Others said there's time to gather stones and throw stones in somebody's vineyard or some to help them come and clear it out, but it doesn't really make sense there. When we were in Israel, one thing I noticed as we were traveling around the countryside in a bus there's a lot of walls in Israel. You would put walls as barriers for property markers, and you would put it in order for windbreaks or whatever, for farming, uh, farming certain plots of land and all. And for whatever reason, the rocks, the majority of the, I'm sorry, the walls, the majority of them were made just simply by stacking rocks. I remember as we were going to the airport, I looked off to the side of the road, and there was some kind of ruins there, and there was a bunch of rocks, and it made no rhyme or reason. Because, again, it served its purpose and it was falling apart. And I'm thinking, man, I can't, just can't imagine how many rocks stacked upon another I've seen on this trip. And I would imagine that's what it means here. It probably means for the purpose of building a wall. There are times in your life where barriers will need to be erected. There's just going to be a time when maybe a friendship or whatever, we just need to get our space here. And there's going to be times when those barriers need to be taken down and you need to get back together. Too much time with anybody is never a good thing. Have you ever gone somewhere or had somebody gone to somebody's house or somebody's come to your house and you just kind of stayed a little too long? There's just that one day. You make it up to that one day and you stay that one extra day and oh, we should have left why things were good. Or maybe they should have left why things are good. I really believe that that has to do with that. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to build walls, but a time to take the walls or barriers down. 
a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracement. I just picture this as a couple. There are times of intimacy, and there's going to be times of separation. My wife and I, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a time of separate. We haven't separated, no gossip, but my wife, it was necessary for her to go up and help my daughter. She delivered a baby in a place that she was brand new at, didn't know anybody else. We gave birth to my seventh grand- grandchild, and my wife went up there for three weeks. That's the longest we've ever been separated but it was necessary, understood the value in it, and it had to happen. But then there's times when she came back, and there's times for embracing as well. And again, there's times and seasons in all of our relationships. There's times that God has ordained for us to be doing this work of ministry to our children, members of the church, whatever it might be. And so God has used our past preparation for our future service to him. As we have built strength in that past preparation, the greater ability we will have to be of, of, of his service. And so we have a strong marriage because of the time of embracing in the past at three weeks. Three weeks will go past sooner or later, and when it does, we're back together, looking forward to what God has in the future. Verse 6, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Life is filled with losses and gains that even out through the course of a lifetime. The ultimate loss here is the loss of a physical body for a spiritual body. The loss of this earth for a new heaven and a new earth. The loss of my earthly life for an eternal life. Again, there's a time when things need to be discarded and there's a time when I'll see the new is going to come in. And especially when it comes to God, the new as it is taken out is always taken out for something better. If you read through the book of Hebrews, constantly better. Jesus was a better priest. He was a better sacrifice. He brought a better covenant. And so the reason that the Lord takes out the old is to bring in the new for better reasons, for better purposes. Revelation 21.5, And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Verse 7, A time to tear and a time to sow a time to keep silent, and a time to speak. A time to throw out the old and battered, or there's the time to repair and to move on. We're told that the law served its purpose, and its purpose was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as the law was in operation, it was a really good thing. The psalmist said, I will delight in the law of the Lord. I'll meditate in it day and night. But then came that new covenant. And so the old covenant, the old way, had to be taken away. So God's finished with the old way. So what does he do? He allows the temple to be destroyed. He allows the temple to be completely done away with. The priesthood, the genealogies, they're all gone. Why? Because they're no longer necessary. Because the new, the better, has been brought in. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So he's talking about the tutelage of the law, the law that is driving us towards the ultimate goal of God in Christ Jesus. But there came that time when the law was replaced by grace. Now when I say replaced, for right standing, for the purpose of right standing in the sight of God. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, 
And that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Sacrifice, now sacrifice, no longer covers sin because Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. Worship is no longer in Jerusalem. It is now in spirit and in truth. And God does not dwell in a temple of stone, but in the hearts of the flesh. Last part of verse 7, a time to keep silent and a time to speak. Any of us who have opened our mouths in a foolish manner understand that one. How many times have you said, oh, I wish I didn't say that. Even up here I've said, don't say that. Then I hear myself saying that and thinking, I wish I didn't say that. And so sometimes there's times when we speak. Sometimes we know that there's times it's better if we're quiet. The best cross reference for this verse is the book of Proverbs. If you have issues there, read the whole book of Proverbs. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. This does not mean that love or hate is to be directed towards a person in a personal manner, but there will be times to love. Righteousness, mercy, and goodness is expressed by another person or by a society. But there's going to be times to love less or to hate. We hate immorality, injustice, and oppression. I love the United States of America, but I hate some of the directions that it has taken. There's a time for love. One of my favorite times of the year now that we do the float in the 4th of July parade, we're all Americans, and it's great to go down Euclid in the float. I'm in the front seat, Kelly and I, we're driving the float, and we've got the people in the back and the decor, and it's just an exciting time, and just love being American. And then there's other times you're thinking, what in the world are they thinking? You know, as it go in an unbiblical direction? There's a time to love, and there's a time to hate. My children, there's a time that I loved them. Not that I ever hated them, but I hated some of the things that they did, or maybe some of the things that they were involved in. Again, verse 8, the last part, a time of war and a time of peace. A good verse for anybody here who aspires to become Secretary of State. There's going to be a time of war, and there's going to be a time of peace. Verse 9. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? So in the midst of all of these things, you've got to consider, what profit do we have? It's in the Lord. It's got to be in the Lord, because if you back up and take God out of the equation, verses 2 through 8 make absolutely no sense. But if we bring God into the equation, we can understand, for all the things that go in our life, there's going to be a season there's going to be times. My wife was talking to somebody that wanted to come to one of our events, <coughs> and they were unable to because of a particular situation. And my wife told them, you know what? There's certain seasons. And right now your season is your priority over here, and you're not able to come to this right now. I remember we wanted to go to a couple's retreat around the time when we first got saved. We had four kids. We didn't have anybody to watch them for a weekend. It wasn't quite our season at that point. But God has seasons and God has times. Learn to enjoy the seasons of our lives. Learn to enjoy the times that God gives you and see his hand in them and learn to value them because these are the times and seasons as you put them all together that constitute your life. Your life which is so dear to God that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Philippians, and I'll close with this, chapter 4, verse 11. 
Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because all these things work together for the good of God, and since they work together for the good of God, everything is under the control of God. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that... Father, you just didn't wind things up and let them go. You didn't just save us and go away and wait for us to come to you. But, Father, you move and you interact in the lives of men and women. Father, this coming week, again, we are entering into what you have prepared for us. And, Father, I pray that that would strengthen, that knowledge would strengthen us. As we see the things on the news that are going on in this country and even across the world, as it thing, seems as things are spiraling out of control... Again, we know that they're falling into place. They're falling into the place, Lord, that you have for them, and all these things are working out to achieve your will and to achieve your purpose. And because of that understanding, because you have told us these things, I pray, Father, that we would gather and gain strength in this time, and, Lord, we would be able to tell others of the God who is in control of their lives as well. So, Father, we just thank you for this weekend. I thank, pray, Father, that through the ministry that we were able to achieve even this whole week with the woman's event last Tuesday and our services today, Seasons of Sorrow yesterday, the, the young adult ministry on, on Friday night, Lord, that you would bless and that you would do works in so many lives. But Lord, we also look forward to this coming week. I pray, Father, for, Lord, just the practices and the preparation for a Christmas outreach that, Lord, you would bring people I pray, Father, that you would use this event, Lord, in a glorious way, that the efforts of those who have worked so hard would, Lord, result in the lives of salvation and encouragement, Lord, to the people who you have called here. And so, Father, again, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness, that you're mindful of us and you think of us, Lord, every moment of our lives. And what a blessing that is. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We